0: Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Monday, September 20th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the history and science of mosh pits. Exciting developments in the treatment of poison ivy reactions, including a possible vaccine. And how to catch tonight's harvest moon, and why we call it that. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. One thing about the before times that I miss, in theory, but maybe don't actually miss, and that I'm honestly not sure when I would ever feel safe doing again, is going to a live punk show and jumping into the mosh pit. Last month, Consequence of Sound ran a series of articles for Punk Week, including one with a brief history of mosh pits and some thoughts on their future in our new COVID world. First, just in case, an explainer, moshing is when people at a show, usually punk, metal, or other fast, often aggressive music, basically just run and jump around slamming into each other, usually in a rough circle towards the front of the crowd, the place in the front of the stage referred to as the pits, hence mosh pits. Paolo Ragusa, at Consequence of Sound, describes it rather poetically, quote, "...at its best, moshing is a visceral and collective experience, a physical way to match the energy of the music you're witnessing with the feeling it gives you. When done right, and safely, there's a willful exchange of bodily autonomy in the mosh pit. It's a relinquishing of a certain amount of control of where your body goes and moves, a step into chaos, a pushing and pulling motion that mirrors the intensity of what's happening on stage." At its best, there should be a feeling of respect in the pit. Everyone is there for a similar reason, to enjoy live music in a visceral and cathartic way. At its worst, moshing can be, of course, deeply harmful. End quote. And yes, truly, Ragusa gives this specific example, but it really could be applied universally to so many scenes. Quoting again, The recent HBO documentary on Woodstock 99 outlines this concept in a devastating way, bringing up the fact that women were reportedly assaulted and violated in the pent-up male-dominated crowds, and that the anonymity of a concert allowed for the lack of accountability and personal responsibility. Watching the doc, it's clear that this behavior went directly against the peaceful mission of the original Woodstock, and that using a mosh pit as an arena for debauchery is an act of cowardice. What's more, it went against the ethos of punk, and the reason moshing exists in the first place. End quote. But why does moshing exist? Well, first, as Ragusa at Consequence of Sound enlightened me, the term mosh comes from a misinterpretation of something HR from Bad Brains said to the audience. He told them to mash, but in his Jamaican accent, people thought he said mosh. The act of moshing, or mashing, as it were, was already a practice that was happening at punk shows before Bad Brains' directive was misheard. So before punk, if you were going to a really upbeat, even chaotic show like Jefferson Airplane, Ragusa says, there was still a concert etiquette that you followed. The more polite dancing began to be broken at early punk shows in the late 1970s. One of the main precursors to moshing was something called pogoing, which is basically just jumping up and down in place with your arms at your sides. Sid Vicious, the bassist of the Sex Pistols, claims to have invented it, sometimes saying he made it up to make fun of non-punks who came to their shows, while others like Viv Albertine from The Slits says that other people made it up to make fun of the way that Sid Vicious jumped up and down when he played the saxophone. Regardless, pogoing picked up around England and in Washington, D.C. and Southern California. And a little bit later, also in Southern California, crowds at Black Flag and Fear concerts started slam dancing, which is pretty much moshing, and started becoming a normal part of punk shows everywhere throughout the 80s. And according to Ragusa, it broke into the mainstream in the 90s when grunge brought so much of the punk world to the mainstream. But for punk, it was something unique. Quoting again, Moshing was a response to the aggression of the sound and the rejection of conformity and tradition, but it was also a way of bringing people together under a common identity, end quote. That common, or we could say collective, identity is interesting to think about in the context of the science of mosh pits. While the hectic behavior in a mosh pit may seem totally random, without group coordination or seemingly even individual patterns, physicist and heavy metal fan Jesse Silverberg conducted a study in 2013 showing that, quoting an Atlantic write-up from the time, while the individual movements of moshers may be random, their collective behavior follows a few simple rules end quote. Silverberg and his research team studied a lot of videos of moshing, went to some mosh pits themselves, and then reduced each individual down to a simple particle in order to create an interactive model that you can still play with online. I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to experiment with it. And basically, through that model and the simulations, Silverberg and his team found that moshers behave a lot like gas particles. Silverberg told The Atlantic, quote, Moshers move randomly, colliding with one another in an undirected fashion. It turns out that the statistical description we use for gases matches the behavior of people in mosh pits. In other words, people bounce around like the molecules in a gas, end quote which is a pretty cool finding in as much as it might help us study crowd behavior in other settings using the same principles that we use to study molecules in gases, like helping EMTs better prepare for these seemingly random movements of panicked crowds in emergency situations, or just helping respond to accidents that happen in mosh pits themselves and designing protocols to make them safer going forward. Because despite how fun they can be for some people, they're not fun for everyone. Smaller people, women, and disabled people are all at higher risk of accidental injury or intentional violation. And even bigger dudes risk concussion or broken bones. Multiple people have died in mosh pits over the decades, and The Atlantic points to a study showing that 37% of injuries at a four-day music festival were related to moshing. Mosh pits can be relatively safe, and in some communities, they function more inclusively than others. Ragusa, back in Consequence of Sound, adds that the new safety needs of COVID-era disease prevention gives us an opportunity to reevaluate, quote, respect, awareness, and safety in mosh pits and at concerts as a whole, end quote, which is something that many folks would tell you is long overdue at concerts, but also something that smaller subcultures, at least, are equipped to do, and the collective spirit of the punk ethos is especially set up to foster, if the work is put in. One band always working to create inclusive spaces and, in their words, quote, embodying the true spirit of punk by creating music that speaks against the ideologies of the ruling class is Rhode Island based Downtown Boys. In my opinion, the best active punk band around today. They're playing here in New York City this weekend, and I'm considering going to the show. If it's even happening in between the required vaccinations and masks, I don't know that I'd be up for joining a mosh pit. But apparently, the venue is right next door to one of those places where you can go into a room and smash a bunch of stuff, so maybe everyone can go there to get their fix of what Ragusa called, quote, that deep human need of catharsis, without having to submerge themselves in a spiky vortex of elbows and breakthrough infections. With the mRNA vaccine revolution here, we're on the precipice of a lot of promising prevention strategies for everything from HIV to cancer. It is truly an exciting time to be alive, despite, you know, everything going on that caused us to finally put money behind mRNA technology. But there's one other vaccine a team of researchers are working on, and it's not an mRNA-based one, but still sounds really, really cool. It's for poison ivy. And just in time, too, Scientific American points to a six-year study from Duke University finding that, quote, elevated levels of carbon dioxide, a driver of climate change, induce the plant to produce a more allergenic form of urushiol, the oily resin responsible for the rash. End quote. Cool, 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 of course the climate emergency is making poison ivy worse. But, like mRNA vaccine technology previously, poison ivy treatment has never gotten much funding or attention in the research realm. Even though 10-50 to million Americans every year experience rashes from poison ivy, it's seen as something that you treat with a half-effective over-the-counter balm, or maybe a visit to your physician. No one really thinks about trying to make treatment or prevention better except for biochemist Sven-Erik Yord and a few others. One recent finding of Yord and his team, at least in animal studies, antihistamines are useless against urushiol, which explains why they so rarely work despite always being recommended as treatment. But there is good news, quoting Scientific American, Working with urushiol exposed mice, Yord and his colleagues found that an immune chemical called interleukin 33, or IL-33, plays a key role in causing the infernal itch. Released by skin cells, it acts directly on sensory neurons in the skin. If either IL-33 or its receptor is blocked, the mice stop scratching, a finding that suggests a new route for treatment. Because IL-33 is involved in asthma and eczema, at least two companies already are working on drugs to block it, but its role in poison ivy was a surprise, end quote. And another development comes from dermatologist Brian Kim at the Center for the Study of Itch and Sensory Disorders at Washington University, quoting again, Also working with mice, Kim, along with scientists at Johns Hopkins University, has shown that immune system components called mast cells trigger itch neurons in the skin. The mast cell and IL-33 pathways are both very new mechanisms, Kim says. In the past, dermatologists believed that urushiol rashes and itch were triggered by the immune system's T-cells, which rally antibodies to attack the skin irritant. Kim believes that T-cells do cause the inflamed rash of poison ivy, but that these other pathways provoke the itch. In other words, what causes the itch is very different from what causes the rash. End quote. End quote. Both of these studies will need to be extended to human trials, which are, again, tough to get funding for, but one study that is moving ahead with human trials is for a compound called PDCAPB, a synthetic version of Urushiol's active component that would be injected as a vaccine once a year or every other year. It would work to reduce or eliminate reactions to poison oak and poison ivy, so it would perhaps most be useful for people like farmers, park rangers, or Batman. The vaccine passed initial safety testing in humans and is about to begin a small, randomized, controlled trial, and unlike the others, there is no lack of interest. Ray Haig, CEO of Hapton Sciences, which licensed the compound, says he gets emails every spring from people asking if it's ready or if they can be in a trial. So the potential on this one is pretty exciting. Vaccines, man. They are seriously very cool. Break out your Neil Young records, it's a harvest moon tonight. Heralding the end of summer, tonight's full moon is referred to as the harvest moon because it used to provide extra light to farmers harvesting their summer crops. Moons for a few days this week rise at about the same time the sun sets and at the same time, day after day, for a few days in a row. Usually the moon rises nearly an hour later each day, but during this time, it rises closer to the same time, depending on where you're viewing from. The Harvest Moon is the nickname applied to whatever full moon is closest to the autumnal equinox, which this year is on September 22nd, this Wednesday. Other moon names like Strawberry Moon, Wolf Moon, and Buck Moon are associated with the month that the full moon occurs in. While we'll be able to see the Harvest Moon tonight in the Americas and Western Africa, those of you in Europe, Asia, Australia, and the rest of Africa will get to enjoy it on Tuesday. Quoting NPR, Sometimes the Harvest Moon appears to be enormous, such as in 2015 when it was the year's closest and biggest supermoon. The moon appears so much larger during supermoon events because it's closer to Earth, known as the perigee. At its closest point, the moon is about 226,000 miles from Earth. But sometimes the harvest moon occurs when the moon is furthest from Earth in orbit, the apogee, at 253,000 miles away. If spectators catch the moon rising at just the right time, it'll appear orange in color. But this theatrical touch isn't specific to the harvest moon. The moon varies in color depending on a handful of factors, including where the viewer is standing. When Earth's satellite is closest to the horizon, it takes on a red or yellow color, NASA says, end quote. And as EarthSky points out, that is largely due to the greater thickness of Earth's atmosphere that you're viewing it through when you're looking up at a moon closer to the horizon. And if you're looking out for it tonight, you will be able to see the Harvest Moon starting just before 8pm Eastern, 5pm Pacific. So, I studied abroad in Amsterdam when I was in college, and one thing I did not learn until I arrived there was that the Netherlands is the tallest nation in the world, and have been for about 70 years. Now, as a pretty short person, even here in the US, I felt like I was in the land of giants. I even had to buy a kid's bike because the adult ones were all too big. It was ridiculous. Well, the Dutch might be on the verge of losing their crown. According to a new study by Statistics Netherlands and the National Institute of Public Health, Dutch men born in 2001 were a full centimeter shorter than those born in 1980, and Dutch women were 1.4 centimeters shorter. Just like researchers have never quite determined why the Dutch are so tall in general, they can only guess at what's causing the shrinkage. Which, by the way, is not just due to immigration from shorter nations, aka every other nation in the world. The researchers said, quote, Dutch men with no family history of migration did not show any increase in height, while Dutch women without any migration in their family got shorter, end quote. In any case, despite the apparent tapering off of growth, the Dutch do remain the tallest nation of people in the world, for now. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.